And it's always exciting when we come into God's presence and when we, we read his word. And we're going to read tonight, working again through First um, Peter, mostly in the morning we've been doing it. But I want to finish off, as I said, before we get into the Christmas kind of things. So I'm going to read from verse 12 of chapter 4. And it's a pretty challenging passage. Suffering for being a Christian. That's the heading in the NIV. <clears throat> and we read Peter's words where he says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Just come and seek God now in prayer. Father, we come to you now and we ask you again to open up your word and to bring this word right home to our hearts to give us understanding of it and to see how our lives fit in to the great truths that are laid before us here Father we pray help us to be open to your Holy Spirit now in Jesus name Amen You know, if there's one thing in the, the church of today that concerns me, it's the, the superficiality at times of, of a lot of Christian teaching that then leads on from that to superficial Christian living, superficial church life, just superficial Christians. And this is something that I've, I've felt for a number of years now. And so I, I was greatly encouraged a good while ago so much so that this is stuck in my memory when so much else seems to instantly fall away. But I was impressed and had struck, you know, in my heart, struck a chord by a sermon I once heard uh, when we were on holiday one time. It was preached by somebody coming from a, a Pentecostal, charismatic, if you like, type background. And the passage that he preached on was from Second Kings 3 about a situation where the armies of Israel, Judah and Eden were on a, a military campaign and then they found themselves without water. And what they were told by the Lord to do via the vehicle of Elisha the prophet, what they were told to do was to labor, to dig trenches, then to make sacrifices, and then they were provided with water in abundance. As verse 20 of 2 Kings 3 says, the land was filled with water. Now, one of the, the points that the preacher made 
from this passage, I'll use his terminology, was that too many Christians of today want the thrill of the fill. I'm going to get myself mixed up there. That is, they want an experience, an experience of the Spirit, experiences of the Spirit, but just for the sake of it. You see, their main focus is themselves. They want an experience that will give them a lift, that will give them a boost. And so they really basically devote their Christian lives to seeking out these experiences, even sadly to the point of manufacturing these kind of experience. And instead, what, what this preacher suggested that we need to learn to do is to labor and sacrifice for the glory of God. For it's then that we'll live a life that we'll find ourselves living a life of full overflowing faith. And then, at that point, then we will know many very genuine experiences of the touch of God on our lives as we live. Not seeking experiences, but rather seeking first his glory. As we labor and sacrifice for the sake of that glory, then we will experience the fullness of his blessing. I found that very helpful at the time, and I continue to find it helpful in my life because I do want to experience more of God. And I'm sure that there's much more that God would do, that God wants to do in my life. But you know, what I've often found off putting in all of this, in common, I'm sure, with many others, is the fact that some of the people who have spoken most to me about the power of the Holy Spirit have sadly been people who seem to experience so little of the grace of the Spirit. They've talked a lot about gifts and miracles, which in itself is great. I'm not going to knock that. But love and holiness and the fruit of the Spirit, all characteristics, all signs of the life of God's Spirit within us that should be there to be seen in the life of any believer who's living in the Spirit. Sometimes we just don't see this. And all of this has brought me to the point where, yes, I believe God may well have more for me. And I want more of him. But you know, I'm not going to let my life be fashioned and formed either by the opinions of people or by chasing after experiences. I'm not going to allow my life to be dominated by superficiality or alternatively by the fear, even the anger that that provokes. Rather, I want my life to be dominated by the word of God and by the spirit of God. I'm determined to be open to God, discerning, but open. I want what God wants for me. Nothing more and nothing less. And I pray that each one of you here tonight want that too. Now, I've shared all of this with you, partly because I wanted to, but also because this theme of the, the superficiality of today's Christianity relates, I think, so much to what we're going to look at here in this passage in First Peter. For you see, this passage that we're going to turn to look at now tells us four things, I believe, about how as Christians we should respond 
when suffering, when hardship and trials come our way. And you know, as I looked at these things, I tell you, what came to me again was just how superficially so often we do live as Christians today. For the first thing we're told here by Peter is to expect suffering. Expect suffering. Verse 12, it says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. But you know, don't too many Christians today really turn that verse absolutely on its head? I think you know mostly what I'm talking about. Christians who seem to be surprised, even amazed, that they're suffering hardship, they're going through a tough time. Who feel let down in a way by God. You know, why is God letting this happen to me? How can God let this happen to me? If he really is my father who loves me and cares for me, how can he let me go through this? But I want to ask you, how can we ever expect to follow in the footsteps of a crucified saviour and avoid suffering? I mean, who can deny that Jesus was loved by the Father? But in order for the Father's perfect purposes to be fulfilled in his life, he had to go to the cross. He had to suffer the ultimate agony of the cross. And rather, the facts are that since the, the fall of man recorded in Genesis 3, since that time, since that very moment, right back in the beginning of our history, God and Satan have been involved in outright spiritual warfare. And Satan's main avenue of attack against the Lord has always been, always been through his people. Of course it has, for how else can Satan attack an all-powerful God? But you know, we're told something else here about our trials and troubles. And it's a shocking thing that, that sometimes, certainly not always, and probably I would say not even often, but sometimes we suffer hardship in life, not because of the devil, but because it is the Lord's will for us. That's what it says, isn't it? In verse 19, it talks of those who suffer according to God's will. Well, that's kind of hard to understand, isn't it? Hard to take in. Well, it is until you look at it a bit more deeply in verse 12, when it says, it says there, dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial. That's what it says, the painful trial you're suffering. Now, what we actually have here is, is a case of what the NIV usually does so well, and that is make the Bible readable, clear, and easily accessible to people today. Is this being taken in this instance just a little step too far? To the extent that in the attempt to be readable and accessible, the actual accurate and real meaning of what's said here, I think, is actually lost. For you see, what Peter literally said here is, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery, fiery rather than painful trial that you are suffering. And of course, when you, when you see that, then that ties in, doesn't it, with other verses such as 1 Peter 
1 verse 7 where fire is seen there as that which purifies and strengthens and then when you put when you put all this together and when you see don't you what's actually being said here that there are instances many instances where our suffering and hardship can be directly traced back and attributed to the devil it's as simple as that the devil's at work sometimes when this is the case, then, then sometimes God delivers us miraculously, instantaneously. But, but more often, rather than that, God stands with us in our troubles. And as we turn to him, as he gives us the grace and strength to get through these, well, so then, what the devil intends to destroy us, our sovereign God is able to take in his sovereignty, into his purposes, and turn these things to that which bring glory to him. And as we grow spiritually through this experience, that which brings rich blessing into our lives. However, this is where we're at in this passage, however, there are times, this is what he's telling us here, when we are put in a place of hardship and suffering by the Lord. By the Lord. Because maybe there are things in our life that are wrong and that need to be dealt with. Or perhaps because there's a ministry, there's a task, there's something that God wants us to do, something that will enable us to serve him in a better, a more worthy way and that will bring real fulfillment into our lives and great joy as we do it. But you see, the Lord knows that if we're going to be able to take this new ministry on, if we're going to be up to the task that he's calling us to, that first maybe there are weaknesses in our life that need to be revealed to us. That our faith, perhaps, needs to be purified, strengthened, refined. That our character needs to grow and develop. That needs to happen. But no matter what the source, though, this is what we're told here. As Christians, we should expect suffering. We should realise that reality. And if our expectation is otherwise, then we're deluded. And we're bound to be frequently disappointed in the Christian life. However, it doesn't finish here because not only are we told to expect suffering, no, we also are told here to rejoice in suffering. Rejoice in suffering. Verse 13 and 14 it says, But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. But how can this be so? How can we rejoice in suffering? I mean, to our modern ears, these two just don't sound right, do they, put together? Well, let me say, first of all, that this certainly doesn't mean always having a big vacant grin and being happy, feeling happy. doesn't mean that. You can rejoice with tears. This shouldn't always be the case, but it can. You can rejoice with tears. But you see, this comes about. This ability to rejoice as we suffer. This comes about when we've got that change perspective on our hardship and trials when we realize when we expect and understand and realize that these aren't simply 
unwarranted intrusions into our lives, but rather these are part of God's plan for our spiritual maturity, that God's in control, that he's got his hands on this, and that they are part of that that great spiritual heavenly warfare between God and Satan, between our Lord and the evil one. For you see, when you realize that, and when you, you place your suffering in that big picture, and you realize that in some way in this experience that you are participating, that you are sharing, that you are joining in the experience of Jesus, that you're following on in his footsteps, that you're walking to some degree at least where he walked, that as Satan attacked him, as the world rejected and abused him, as the Father used his suffering to bring glory and blessing through him, as you realize that this too is what God intends to be your experience. That what you are suffering isn't something that's mindless, meaningless, pointless, but that you stand with Jesus in this. Well then, your suffering is dignified and you can find joy in it. And again and again, this has been the experience of the people of God. Just one biblical example to share with you. In the early days of the church, the apostles were put on trial and almost condemned to death for preaching Christ. And then they were flogged severely and ordered to speak no more in the name of this Jesus. Well, Acts 5, 41 and 42 is the final comment of the Bible on this sequence of events. And it says there, after all that had happened to them, beaten, threatened by the most powerful men in the land. It says, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. That's a different perspective. But our rejoicing comes though, not only as we realize that in our suffering that we're participating, that we're sharing in the suffering of Jesus, no, we're also able to, to rejoice as we think of the glory that is to come. Verse 13 again it says, Rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. You see, the suffering in this life that we go through, that like a, a hammer and chisel in the hands of a great master sculptor that God uses to fashion and form us more and more into that likeness of Christ. This one day when we stand in God's presence, either at our death or at the Lord's return, I pray it is going to lead to praise and glory. As God looks at us, looks at you, looks at me, sees our lives, looks at the way that we've responded and turned to him in life, in our suffering, at the way that our suffering has been used to the glory of Christ and changed to make us more like Christ, that so then God will give us his praise. And you see, it's this 
as we realize this is what lies before us, as we look forward to it, as we anticipate it, it's this that brings us, that can bring us joy in our suffering. You know, it's like an Olympic athlete or maybe a boxer or whatever, keeping going with the training, keeping on doing the road work, maybe on the cold, wet, windy nights, going out early, coming back late, everybody else is in bed, everybody else is out having fun. But you see, all they're thinking about is that gold medal lying at the end of the road, of that championship, of that glory that is to come. It's like this for the Christian, with one big vital difference. They might win their medal. They might win their championship. They might have their moment of fleeting glory. But our glory in Christ is sure and certain and eternal. And so we rejoice. We should rejoice. However, we rejoice not only because we're aware that as we suffer, we participate, we share in a special way with Christ. And not only because in our suffering, we look forward to future glory. No, but we also rejoice. We are also able to rejoice because of our present experience, here and now experience, of the Holy Spirit. Verse 14, it says, If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Now, the way that the Spirit is referred to here is actually very unusual to the point you could almost say it's close to unique. And because of this, Wayne Grudem, again, great book on, on First Peter, he says that this indicates an unusual fullness of the presence of the Holy Spirit to bless, to strengthen, and to give a foretaste of heavenly glory. And you see, all of this echoes back first into the Old Testament. That is to, to what's called the Shekinah glory of God. And what that means, that's about times when the Spirit of God, when the glory of God in special circumstances, maybe special times of need, when the glory of the Spirit of God came upon the people of God. For instance, Exodus 40, 34, where we read that then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud of the Lord had settled upon it and the glory filled the tabernacle. But this also works its way out in the, the New Testament. For example, just one example in the life of Stephen, the first Christian martyr, who gave his life because of his faithful witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. And Acts 7.55 tells us that Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. And he said, look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And it goes on, while they were stoning him, Jesus prayed, Stephen prayed, sorry, Lord Jesus, 
receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he said this, he fell asleep. He rejoiced. There in the presence of that suffering, he rejoiced because he saw and knew and experienced the glory of God. So you see, rejoicing in our suffering isn't, as you might have been thinking, uh, but what's been said so far, isn't just a matter of us thinking in the right way, that that's enough, you know. The power of positive thinking, just getting in the right frame of mind, that, that that's what we're talking about. No, rather what this is about, is about as we are thinking in the right way. And as so our hearts are turned and opened towards God, that so then, at that point, the Spirit of God will come upon us. And He will strengthen us and enable us to rejoice in our suffering. So, we have to expect suffering as Christians. Rejoice in suffering. The third thing, I believe, we're, we're told here, that will help us to escape from superficiality in our thinking about suffering, about the Christian life. The third thing we're told is to review our experience of suffering. Verse 15 to 18 says, If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So what I, what I mean then when I say we should review our experience of suffering, well, first of all, what I mean is that we should examine our suffering, we should look at it, and if our suffering is arising because of our sin, if we know that it's something we are doing or have done that's brought us to this place, then let's not talk then, as verse 15 makes clear, of what the devil is seeking to do. Or of how I can bring glory to God in this. How God can spiritually mature me through this. Let's not start there. No, before we do anything else, we need to confess our sin. To repent of our sin. Before God will do anything, and he will. But before he will do it, we have to do these things. But as well as examining our suffering in this sense, I believe we need also to examine it in the sense of understanding in terms of seeing it in the context of the complete purposes of God. Now, I've already touched on this in, in, in a way a little bit already, but I think an extra dimension is added to this by Peter's words in verse 17 where he says, For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God. Now, I think this is saying something very important. For we often wonder, don't we, why it is that sometimes God's people seem to suffer so terribly. And yet, in this world, those who are enemies of God, people who do great evil, sometimes seem to go unpunished. And we wonder why. 
Well, I think here Peter tells us a little bit of why. For what he's saying here is that the fiery trial that we're going through now, the suffering that we're experiencing now, this is part, this is the beginning of the judgment of God. And we're sinners, we're not immune from the judgment of God. But you see, for us who believe, this fire, this judgment, is a purifying fire. It's a refining fire. It's a fire, a fire that can make us holy and prepare us and fit us for eternity in the presence of the God of glory. However, the fire, that is the suffering that we are going through now, is but a foretaste of that final judgment of God. That judgment that one day is going to fall on all who've refused God's offer of life with him through Jesus. See, that's what it says, isn't it, in verse 17. It is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? You see, all this is simply a fulfillment of Old Testament teaching that's given in the Old Testament in places like Ezekiel 9 and Malachi 3. That judgment will begin with the people of God as a purifying fire. But then it will move out from there, out from the people of God, as a judgment of condemnation. So, as we review then our suffering, I don't believe we should just examine it to seek to understand it. But we should go on from that rather to be motivated by it. You see, let's not sit back in life and say sometimes, poor me. Instead, let's remember that whatever we are going through now, that is but a foretaste of what is going to come for those who are without Christ. So you see, don't be limited by what you see around us today. People maybe seem contented and happy and comfortable, as if they don't need Jesus, they don't need anything else. They may do. But don't forget, whether they know it or not, these same people without Christ are bound for hell. It doesn't matter how content they are. That's their eternal destiny without the salvation God freely offers in Christ. And you know, if that doesn't motivate you to share Jesus, then nothing else will. Verse 18 again. It is, if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? The final point I want to very briefly make about suffering is, how we, is in relation to how we should respond to it. And that's in the sense of how we should respond in those many situations in life when despite what I've just said, when we just can't make sense of what's going on around us, maybe what's happening in our own lives. We can't make sense. No matter how we try and how often we bring it to God and come before Him, we just can't tie up the horrific experience we're having with anything that God might want to do in us. We can't see how it fits together proportionately. Even if our, our, our suffering, if we could directly just say attribute it to the devil, Still, we cannot see what God wants to do in us by permitting this to continue. Well, in these circumstances, 
I think verse 19 tells us what we should do, all we can do. That is, trust God and continue to do what is right. So then it says, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. And you know, as I say these words, they remind me of words that, that Peter Barber once shared at a church anniversary and uh, a church I shared many years ago now. And what he said is that the things in life that we don't understand, we have to learn to see in the light of the big things about God that we do know and we do understand. For instance, that he loves us so much that he sent his son to die for us and that he will never let us go. Now, not too long after that church anniversary, Peter Barber was called to prove the truth of those words in his own life as he died a long and painful death of cancer. And I know that by God's grace, he bore that suffering with great dignity and faith and trust in God. Isabel Barber, Isabel, his wife, she told me that their family doctor who cared for him, tended him throughout his illness and was not an evangelical Christian in any sense. She told me that he broke down in tears when Peter died. Because, you see, he had seen a man suffer and die in Christ. He had seen a man not bitter and angry because of his suffering, not afraid of death, but a man full of love and grace, of faith and of hope. Peter, in his joy and in his suffering, in his life and in his death, brought glory to God. My prayer is that by the grace of God, the same one day might be said of each one of us. Let's pray together. Father, we know that there are things in life that we'll never fully understand. And all we can do is just get a glimpse, an edge of understanding through the truth of your word. But we also know that we don't have to understand everything. Sometimes all we need to do is we need to know you. We need to look to you. We need to hold on to you. We need to be obedient to trust in you. Sometimes that's all we can do. But Lord, that's enough. It is more than enough. There is nothing more beautiful in this world, nothing more wonderful than someone trusting in you in the suffering, in the depth of it. Father, we praise you for your faithful people. But above all, we praise you because you are a faithful God. This we do now in Jesus' name. Amen.